My guest here is Professor Jacqueline Hidalgo, who's Professor of Latino Studies and of Religion, as well as Associate Dean of Dean for Institutional Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Williams College. Welcome, Jackie. Hi, uh, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with uh, one of your blog entries, the Bible as a text of migration. You say the Bible registers the stories of and cultural traditions around different migrants in human history. The tale of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and 4, you say, is among other things, the tale of humans forced to migrate from their first home, humans who must then labor to make home elsewhere. Yeah, I find this very interesting, Jackie. You know, I was just mentioning to you, I grew up as a Catholic in, in South India, and then I came to the U.S. almost 30 years ago now to go to graduate school. And it, it's sort of interesting. Uh, as you know, India has um, maybe about 2% Christians. Um, not all of them are Catholics. Uh, but the place I grew up is actually fairly uh, Christian. And this, uh, not fairly, but 25% at least. Uh, are Christian compared to the rest of the country. And um, till 2016, I would say, I never thought about myself as an immigrant. Uh, you know, I, I sort of fell into the American dream and American ideas. I had a host family when I came to Chicago from, from South India. And um, I was, you know, sort of, well aligned with American ideas. But 2016 changed quite a few things for me. <laughs> and so now I start to wonder who I really am um, in the US after 30 years. So just talk a little bit about the Bible. Uh, so by the way, I'm an agnostic, so I, I'm not an expert on Bible. Uh, I'm not an expert on any, any, <laughs> any spiritual scriptures or anything. Uh, but I found the idea to be quite interesting. So, so yeah, let's think about Bible as a text of migration. So what do you mean? Yeah, and, and I'll say a couple of things in a general way, and then I want to return to what about 2016 uh, mattered for you, because I think it's a little bit relevant to how I switched gears in my own thinking about the Bible. Um, you know, I'm... I am a student of scriptures as a phenomenon in human life. I have a particular focus on Christian Bibles in Latina Latino communities, but not just Christian Bibles. Actually, I'm also interested in other texts and traditions that are mobilized as scriptures in Latinx communities and just sort of understanding better what, what are these things? How do people engage with them? And I'd say that partially by, by looking at the Bible as a text of migration, I am trying to do two things. I'm trying to help people um, sort of see the Bible a little bit differently, right? And that's to, to put a sort of central focus on the people, um, in, people in relationship to the Bible that the relationship that people have with the Bible, what is, what is going on with it? How has it been used? Um, but I also am trying to intervene in a discourse at the time, which um, had become quite politically charged, um, you know, under um, the administration of President Trump, for instance. And one of the things I referenced in that blog post, at the, at the time, Attorney General Jeff Sessions had cited the Bible, Romans 13, as justification for um, pretty repressive deportation policies, family separation at the border, um, incarceration of migrant children and, um, and other migrants at the border. And I was also trying to shed a light on, well, actually, what happens if we don't see that text from the perspective of um, people who are who feel settled in place, but actually see the Bible instead as a product of human migrations. And, and I think, you know, asking that question, and there's been a, a lot of work done in different ways, it allows you to see that there are uh, so many literary representations of migration within the Bible itself and a diverse array of representations. And I can talk more about that. There's not one 
representation. One example is, as I said, you can view Adam and Eve um, as a pair of humans who are expelled by a governing authority and are forced to migrate and forced to make home outside of what had been their homeland, which is now blocked off from them by an armed guard. So that's certainly one, you know, one narrative, but there are many different others in many different forms. Uh, another way of looking at the Bible as a text of migration, though, is also to, is not only to think about the literary representations within the text and how we might read them differently, it's also to think about how that collection of texts that we think of as the Bible came to be. And that's to say that, why do we even have this thing that we call the Bible? Why do these texts exist? To some extent, and in a very fundamental way, the earliest collecting of these texts into a sort of collection of writings that starts to circulate is really done when you're talking about peoples who have been exiled, who have been forcibly moved from their homeland under the Babylonian Empire in around 586 BCE and for 50 years are made to live in exile in Babylon and away from Jerusalem and what had been the kingdom of Judah. Um, and following that conquest, they really start to consolidate traditions that may have been oral traditions and they start to consolidate them within what we might call anthologies. And, and there's been a lot of work in, in Jewish tradition, especially on this notion of the anthological imagination and how important it is to the formation of Jewish texts, not only what we think of as the, the part of the Bible that's the Jewish Bible, but also the Talmud, lots of traditions of interpretation that are really put together for a people who are now living in diaspora. Some people in the homeland, some people outside of it. How do you create a community that no longer shares the same place, but is sharing a broader sense of place as part of identity? And you see that as, as being part of how what we think of as the Bible getting formed. Um, and that's the sort of Jewish side of it. And, and you know, this, this term is very fraught. When, when is something Jewish? When does something um, become what we think of as Jewish? But I'm going to bracket that as a historical problem for others. These are certainly the texts we associate with our contemporary Jewish traditions. Um, but what we think of also as early Jewish communities who become in their legacy Christian they also start playing with the scriptural traditions with these narratives of migration. And they also, to some extent, get formed in the midst of a different kind of uh, diasporic crisis. And that's especially the one that falls after the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem under the Roman Empire in 70 CE. And the, the really transformative effect that had on Jewish traditions including what would become what we think of as the Christian tradition. Um, and so that's sort of one set of it. And then another thing that I would sort of chart out is that when, uh, when we see what we think of as the kind of Western Christian Bible form, it's after uh, Christianity becomes the religion of the Roman Empire. And so the Ethiopic church, for instance, has its own Bible that has different texts that are not the same as um, the, the Western Bible, because that tradition was never under the Roman imperial dominion and, and sort of control. But under the Roman Empire, and at this point, we're talking about like a real migrating of the tradition uh, around in a, in a different in a different venue, um, there becomes a greater concern for how to control the diversity of what had been early Christian traditions. And so you think of the Bible then as a, as a as a different kind of conglomeration for a migrating population, no longer just one escaping an oppressive regime, but now a population that migrates as part of imperial demand and seeks to control the diversity that, that falls within this Bible. And so I, I think it's important to think about the, the tension of these sort of different histories that shape what we think of as, as the Bible. Um, the other way that I think it's important to think about the Bible and how it comes to be the Bible we have is that it's not just about how it gets formed in the ancient world. It's also about the legacy of what we think about it and how we interact with it in the present. And there's no 
unthinking or escaping the history of this Bible as a Bible that has been broadly brought to the world through imperialism and especially mm-hmm. through Western European imperialism. And, and there's not really a way of escaping that history But I think it's important to think about those people were also themselves migrants, especially for those of us who live in the Americas, the people of European descent here, their ancestors were migrants to this this hemisphere. They brought those traditions with them. And when they did so, um, they, they ended up also making it so that a variety of peoples engage with this biblical tradition and remake what we mean by Bible because it is now in the hands of many different peoples and how they engage with the Bible transforms what we think we mean by it. So, so let me let me push on this a little bit, Jackie. So I quite like the idea that the Bible is sort of the cookbook <laughs> for migrants. Um, as an agnostic, you know, I don't find any utility for most scriptures, um, I find them sort of time, you know, waste of time. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but it is really interesting to think about. And you talked about Cuba, you know, in the, so we'll go, we go into the the book chapters and and others that use Bible sort of a a way to um, way to survive. I mean, it, it was a technology in some ways, right? So when you have this overriding stress and other aspects, you you sort of use this technology to survive, right? So could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, and and so the the way that I came to think about it, and I can talk about that essay, um, you know, um, for a little while in the early part of my doctoral program, I was doing ethnographic research on a broadly Cuban evangelical church and sort of imagine as evangelical. It was a Calvary chapel in Claremont. The pastor, Marco Alvarez, he's, um, he and his wife, Mirta, had um, uh, migrated to the United States from Cuba in the 1960s. Um, there were a number of other um, uh, Cubans in the congregation. It wasn't a, a big church. It was a you know relatively small church, had both a Spanish and an English service. Um, Pastor Mark Alvarez was himself bilingual. Um, what I was there is I was sort of just trying to understand, like as a as an evangelical church, they certainly proclaim themselves as people who believe in the literalness of the Bible. Um, I like you perhaps have some skepticism about what that means, <laughs> right? So like personally, I, I come from a space of you know I don't I don't think there is such a way as reading the Bible literally. <laughs> so. Um, I was interested in what are what are they actually doing with the Bible? How are they actually engaging with the Bible? What does it mean to read it? You know, I should also say, as I mentioned in that essay, um, I was also raised Roman Catholic, um, but from a fairly progressive family tradition. Um, I was born in Costa Rica, but grew up in the United States. Um, you know, I've lived most of my life here. Um, so my, you know, I felt like my relationship to this um, community was was quite uh, quite distinctive. I wasn't there as an insider per se. I may know Spanish um, to some extent as a uh, as a as a you know child who grew up in the United States, but I don't. Cubans aren't my people. It's not my history. Um, I was curious about how does a group of Cubans um, migrate from Cuba come to say that they read this Bible literally? What what does that mean? What does that look like in action? What does that do for them? And I think what I found uh, instead was that um, I wasn't asking the right question about reading. I should be asking the question of sort of, of doing. And that's where, and you're pointing to this way, and here I'm drawing on the work of Sarah Ahmed's notion of homing devices. The Bible is doing a bunch of things. It is being read, but it's not just being read in, in this congregation. It, um, you know, it adorns the walls. It's an iconic object. Uh, it, you know, for the, the pastor's wife, for instance, Mirtha, the Bible um, in the King James Version and um, Chuck Smith, who had been the like sort of founder of the Calvary Chapel movement in the 60s, his interpretations of the Bible become how she learns English. Mm. So the Bible becomes 
like that becomes her language world in English. Um, you know, this is something that has also been discussed by, by Susan Harding in the book of Jerry Falwell, which is the sort of way that um, in the engagement with the Bible, people come to sort of read themselves in and through these biblical stories and traditions. It becomes a language world through which they differentiate themselves from the outside world. They set the boundaries of their interior, interior world. And what I found was really essential in those boundaries were discourses of home and citizenship. Mm -hmm. And so even though they're really focused on the language of the Bible and the stories of the Bible, they're emphasizing different ways of talking about the home, um, both the domestic home, but also the national home. And they're emphasizing this discourse of being citizens of heaven, of their citizenship and their belonging really being located in another world. And the Bible is the sort of object through which they have access to that other world and to that otherworldly belonging. Um, and so it's not simply about what the Bible means. It's also about what it what it does for them and it how does, it allows them to yeah. to create home. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't have any strong views on this, Jackie, but I, I want to get your perspective on this. So uh, Homo sapiens set off, let's say, 200,000 years ago from Africa. We have spread all around the world and um, we created a lot of different religions and a lot of scriptures and so on. But from a really fundamental perspective, one could probably prove that none of these things have any sort of objective value, but then they have significant subjective value. I think that's what you're arguing, right? So a, a migrant coming, say, from Costa Rica or Mexico into the U.S., these technologies actually has quite a quite a bit of value for them. Um, but on the on the downside, though, if you believe that you know eight billion people are all genetically very similar, <laughs> there is no reason for religions or countries or cultures, then these segmentation schemes, I mean, I call religion sort of a segmentation scheme, right? Somebody is taking advantage of this. Um, not the migrants, but, so, you know, we had a president in 2016 who took advantage of this. So um, it, it has some, it has a downside, doesn't it? Yeah, so this is where I want to go, go back and I, I want to maybe think about a couple, two different things. And I want to go back to, I think this is what you're referencing. What happened in 2016 for you that transformed your perspective on yourself that you were suddenly like, oh, I'm also a migrant? What, what happened? So. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a quite interesting thing. I mean, um, yeah, I, I don't know a good answer to that. I mean, you know, obviously 2016, we all know what happened in 2016. Um, we had somebody who was apparently president who wanted to kill off every American idea. Um, every American idea, <laughs> almost, right? And that was a shock for, but only half the country though. So, so this is what I want to sort of ask you. Um, half the country is ready to bring the guy back. <laughs> <laughs> in 2024, they're absolutely ready. Um, and so the quiet thoughts that we have are not necessarily that good because the the thoughts were not quiet anymore. Half the country could actually shout now, right? After 2016, they were just thinking it before. Now they can talk about it in, in plain English. So that that's a, that's a big change. Me. Yeah, no, I, I, I asked that because I'd say, like I said, I think it, it changed um, the, the tactics I feel I was employing and what I, I thought I, I was doing as well, um, because um, watching the sort of very kind of, you know, I don't know, just <laughs> naked use of, of power, the sort of uh, the normal adornments that that might have surrounded um, 
previous, uh, in, you know, public uses of, of the Bible and previous public behavior um, around a, a very kind of xenophobic uh, white nationalism, like that mask fell off in a lot of ways. Um, and I'd say that, um, you know, one of the major things that drew me into this study um, was actually having spent my teenage years uh, in Kansas City, Catholic in background, but in a landscape that was um, dominated by white evangelicals and, you know, being ethnically Latina um, in, in that landscape and, and really trying to understand um, the ways that religion and race were seemingly intertwined in yeah. that context and that context. And I was really trying to understand how did this, how did this happen? And that drew me to the work of eventually over time through college and then, um, and then um, my master's program into the work of Vincent Wimbush. And one of the things that uh, he, you know, he really thinks about in a big way is he, he isn't just interested in the Bible. And that's why I said, I'm a, I'm a student of scriptures. Like he's not just interested. He thinks of the Bible as a kind of prime object to focus on. We're in this context, it makes a, a good object to focus on, but he's, he's really interested in this thing that are called scriptures, which is really about trying to understand how people create, how people decide what is gonna be the thing that we segment off as sacred, that we all decide that we share and we refer to and we mediate authority in relationship mm. to this thing. And then what are the rules that we kind of set up to, to govern that, right? And that's the sort of set of questions. So you can you can take the Bible as, as an example of that. You can think about like what how is it that we've decided that this particular collection of stories, this medium of writing and this way of relating to it that we see in churches, how does that come to have more authority than, than anything else? What, what are the, the rules that sort of dictate that, that decision? Um, but you can also think about like what, what are the ways that the US constitution operates as scriptures, like what are the ways that, um, you know, and, and here I'm thinking of the work of uh, another scholar, James Watts, who talks about how scriptures tend to operate in, in three dimensions, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, only one of those dimensions is semantic. So that's where you think of as the, the sort of meaning dimension where people bicker over meaning. In the case of the, um, the constitution, you could think especially uh, the judiciary branch, the sort of like um, the Supreme Court being the ultimate invested uh, authorized interpreters of the semantic meaning that we sort of, you know, what they say is, is the end. But there's also the iconic dimension and the performative dimension. And you can, you can kind of think of like the iconic dimension of the constitution there is a temple in the National Archives that you can go to <laughs> to see the Constitution on display. Um, and then in terms of the performative dimension, you can think about, you know, this is something that happens in, um, you know, in, in Williamstown on July 4th, readings from the different founding documents, the Declaration of, the in of Independence, as well as the preamble to the Constitution, and how they sort of get ritually performed in public in different ways. Um, I like to joke with people that you know the Constitution is scripture because people um, like to claim that it justifies their views on things without actually having read it. So they misquote it. But that's how you know it's operating as scripture is because they use it to claim authority for their point of view, even if they don't necessarily know what it means. It holds a sort of authorizing power. Um, and that's a sort of way of thinking about what scriptures are. And in that way, it, it isn't necessarily um, that it's this sort of sacred text, but it is about what have a certain group of people decided is the thing that we locate authority external to ourselves in 
and that we locate a means of adjudicating who has authority and on what terms to make decisions about who's inside and who's outside of a community, um, who has power to do certain things within the community. Um, and how do we make that decision about something that is beyond um, ourselves? Um, and so that, that, was, that was really what had initially drawn me in was sort of those questions. Um, but when I saw, um, you know, any number of things, both in the run-up to the, the election in 2016, as well as things that happened in the in the years since, um, it it made me think about the kind of different layers at which, as a student of scriptures and human life, I need to be writing and talking to people, and the different things I want to try to help them to to think about in terms of of human history. Because what is how do you um, work with people? who have decided that they've invested authority in a set of texts that are maybe not the texts I would prefer to invest authority in for a whole host of reasons. So, so let me ask you this, Jackie. So suppose I think about this sort of in a three-dimensional space, race on x-axis, religion on y-axis. In the z-axis, I have such a political system um, democracy, autocracy, religiocracy, I don't know how to call I mean, I, I, coming from a country that is sort of, um, it's now yeah. in the in the midst of some sort of religiocracy. I don't, I don't know what to call, what, how, to, how to think about it. I mean, it was very secular when it started off in 1947. It's not at all secular anymore. So, so we have three things here. So religion, race, and political system. And I was telling somebody the other day that I believe that religion is incompatible with democracy. Um, and I think the founders of the US had this inkling. I mean, we, we sort of separated the state and the, and the church, but it's not the case for most of the democracies. It's, it's sort of driven by religion. Uh, so how can you have a democracy with religion driving it? I mean, is, is it possible? I mean, I, I think that that's a really great and challenging question for our time. And if I had a good answer for you, I think I, there's a lot I could solve. <laughs> like if there was a, a really good answer. You know, I, I, I like to think with a couple of different tensions here when we think about what what is the sort of history. I mean, I think first of all, there there are a lot of a lot of tensions I both want to, like you, um, for a variety of reasons, affirm that in the, the foundations of the United States documents, the um, disestablishment of any one religion per se was, was quite foundational, right? So that you have the First Amendment um, that inscribes the, the freedom of religion. Um, and, and so I, I'm with you in that I, I want to, to hold on to that, but I don't actually think that all of the founding figures viewed um, would necessarily have shared all of the same views on that. But I think they what they were trying to do, and your your you know what I think matters here is actually trying to think about how do you create a space where people can belong together without belonging to the same church. What does that mean? How do you how do you create that? And I think that is a, a problem that we're still grappling with. Um, I think that part of the problem in U.S. history has definitely been that that is not how everyone takes the United States, and that there has been a long um, history in the U.S. of a of a deep intertwining of um, whiteness and um, especially Protestant Christianity and a sense of US nationhood on the part of a lot of figures. Um, and that's, you know, that's a history that we have to grapple with. We have to grapple with its legacies. I think one of the things that, and here I'm thinking of the scholar Sylvester Johnson and his work on the sort of history of, of African-American religions from um, 
1500 to 2000, you know, it's a pretty expansive tome. And, and he really concludes that book by struggling with what is democracy? Um, what is there a way of conceptualizing democracy that does not um, require there be a people included on the basis of peoples excluded? Is there a way of conceiving of democracy where the demos is truly everyone? And, and, and that we don't have an example of that actually in US history. We don't have an example of that really being practiced. Um, here I'm also thinking of the work of um, Christina Beltran on cruelty as citizenship. And I saw her talk and I'd be really interested. She's working on thinking, uh, she's working on a book that's kind of like citizenship after cruelty. I'm very curious what that looks like. But a huge part of her argument is that for a large part of US history, the, the, the citizenship of the United States has in many ways fundamentally rested on the abilities of one set of subjects to be cruel to others, to, to outsiders, to be able to um, cast people as either um, excluded from the United States or included on it, but in a subordinated or secondary status. So how can we imagine uh, a, a sense of democracy that, that is more expansive? And I also think that what I hear in your question is also how can we imagine a democracy that's bigger than the United States? Like what would it mean to imagine uh, democracy for the citizens of earth? What would that look like? What would that require? Um, and, you know, and here I'm, I'm mindful of, I think a lot of work that's been touted lately, both within the sort of, um, you know, black radical tradition, as well as Afro-pessimism. I'm thinking especially of Sylvia Winter's critique and challenge of what we even mean by the human and the extent to which it got crafted in modernity in foundational ways that are anti-Black at their root, that, that presume a hierarchy within what it means to be human. And so the challenge is how do we reconfigure that for our present moment? Yeah, so, so Jackie, you know, I sometimes feel the surface features that everybody sees, it's not as, as deep as religion and race, maybe. I had one of your colleagues on and, you know, was telling me uh, there was a Japanese guy trying to get a U.S. citizenship in the 1920s. And the Supreme Court said, you're not Anglo-Saxon, you cannot come in. And there was an Indian guy who was trying to get a U.S. citizenship. They said, you look too dark to be American. Um, and we are just 100 years from that. I mean, it's just pretty close in time, right? So have we really moved on from those ideas? I'm, I'm, I'm very puzzled <laughs> where we are today. I mean, I think that those are also really great questions because I'm I'm not so sure. I think that's part of the challenge. And the, the examples you're, you're giving of, um, the cases Ozawa and um, and uh, Thind. I mean, I think what's especially remarkable in thinking about those cases, and this is an argument that comes up in um, uh, a book on uh, sort of white white Christian supremacy in the United States. Um, and I feel so bad. I'm blanking on the scholar's name right now. Uh, Kiati Joshi, her book. Um, you know, one of the things that she thinks is worth highlighting is the intertwining in those cases of that's both a matter of what we think of as racial difference based on features and religious difference. You know, it is this intertwining of, of these differences that are being associated um, with a, a difference that is both religious and racial. And one of the things that Johnson argues in his book on, on African-American religions is that we that in as the category of religion really emerges in modernity and and that's really it we don't we don't have a, a category that's quite like what we mean by religion um, prior to 
um, modernity. And even then it's always a kind of shifting category, <laughs> um, but it really emerges in tandem and in the midst of uh, the colonization of um, the new world of European imperial encounters with other communities and other contexts. And it emerges that the very borders of what we mean by religion are getting formulated in relationship to what are being constructed as the borders between people. And so to what extent is religion um, a function of or being formulated in relationship to definitions of quote unquote racial differences that are also being formulated. Again, we don't, you know, there are many ways that humans have tried to differentiate themselves from other humans over the course of thousands of years. I don't want us to act like modernity is actually that exceptional. It's exceptional in the number of humans there are and the level of certain kinds of violence that, that exist, but it's actually not exceptional that humans have differentiated themselves from other humans in aggressive ways. Um, but nevertheless, the way that we think of race, there is a certain exceptionalism to it in modernity and the way that we think of religion, there's a certain modern formulation of it. Um, and that, religious difference is often articulated as being racialized. And you see that manifest, particularly in the history of Europe in that European Jews are cast out both as racial others, as well as religious others up to a certain horrible point that we think of as the Holocaust. Um, so. so let me ask you this, Jackie. So yeah. we have a new religion, it's called science. <laughs> And um, it's actually, you know, quite interesting. I mean, it's, it's pretty religious in the sense that there's confirmation biases, there's confirmation biases. I mean, everybody's sort of fallen to the status quo to get tenure and all sorts of things. Um, that's a religion too, in many ways. So, so I, I don't know if you have looked into um, India. Uh, I want to just touch on that a little bit. So, I mean, you have this class system that is race, um, it is very highly dominated by a single religion, but then it's also the third largest Muslim country in the world, you know, so it, it's, it's actually a very complex phenomenon. And then we have now a party in democracy, quote-unquote, can only win, never lose, <laughs> because 80% of the people vote for that party. So. Is that really democracy? I'm sure. So, you know, going back to this race, religion, political system matrix, you can get stuck in one corner of that and never escape that, right? I mean, we, we could be, the US could be in that too. Um, we were almost there for, for a brief moment, uh, but we could, we could get there too. So, are we heading toward that? Uh, I mean, there, there's a South Korean guy who just got elected. Um, he had nothing good to say about women, <laughs> but but uh, he got elected. In so South Korea, I would think is an advanced society, um, but then he's the one who got elected. I mean, I, I think that we are in a really, um, and we were talking about this a little before we started recording, we are in, in, for me, a particularly challenging moment in human history. And I, as I don't know if this is generational, this is not the world I thought I would be living in. When I was in college in the late 90s and early 2000s, I, this is not the world that I thought <laughs> I would be living in um, 20 years later, <laughs> for sure. Um, that there was a different kind of, of optimism about where we're headed. And, and, and you know, what I hear in your question is I hear, I think, three different things that to ask about. First of all, one is like to the extent of, to what extent can we think of science as religion and what would that, that mean? I think that's one sort of question. Another sort of question that you're asking is about, and I, and I think this is really important. I'm, I'm, a, I'm first and foremost a scholar of a, a group of um, ethnic minoritized subjects in, in the US and the histories that have sort of shaped the Americas when it comes to, to religion. Um, but I am someone who reads the news. I certainly have watched as um, there's been a rising tide of a, a kind of evangelical conservatism in South Korea that has shaped a lot of public discourses. And um, I, I don't think that, you know, 
um, throughout much of my, my lifetime, um, there has been a, a rising tide of a kind of intertwined Hindu nationalism in, in the case of India that you're referencing that manifests most strongly with um, what is going on with Modi and the BJP right now with, um, and that is often most virulently expressed an anti-Muslim sentiment in that, in that situation. And I think to your point, it's telling that Muslims are actually such a large minority. So, you know, it's telling that you target exactly the community that's such a, a significant minority in, in some ways. I think this goes back to the question that Sylvester Johnson is in some ways asking about, um, and that I think is also, you know, Christina Beltran in a different way is asking about when she thinks about citizenship as cruelty, which is to what extent when we say that a society is coterminous with the people, who gets to define the people? And what are the perils of how the people get defined when there are always going to be ways that one set of people can differentiate themselves from another, right? So what are the perils of democracy um, and the perils of um, majority rule? And this is something that political theorists have thought about more deeply than I have, right? But like, how do you actually provide for and protect for minorities? along a variety of different vectors so that they um, are not uh, violently suppressed and overridden by the people who view themselves as the majority. How do you imagine and construct a society? And I think that this is a kind of constructive question about, for me as a student of scriptures, what is the relationship that we can have with discourses of authority and power and the sacred that enables people to flourish together instead of one group of people trying to exercise power and domination over another. Mm -hmm. You know, what, 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 what makes that possible? Um, I think that you're sort of, you know, it's an interesting question you ask about to the extent that, that science can be considered a religion. Um, there, you know, there are a variety of different discourses on that. I, I don't, you know, I think that uh, as with everything, that's a sort of, you know, this is a very humanities approach um, and you've probably heard it as an undercurrent in everything I've been saying. Like, I think there are times when it's useful to, to put things in conversation and then there are times when you really wanna draw clear boundaries for different reasons. So like, sometimes it's useful to think about all migrants in a general sense, when I talk about the Bible as a text of migration, it can be helpful to think about migrants in a broader way. But there are other times when you really need to distinguish between very different kinds of migration and very different histories and what the legacies of those very different histories of migration are. Um, you know, the different history it is between being um, the descendant of enslaved Africans who were forcibly brought to these shores versus being people who um, chose to come to these shores under different circumstances. Um, in this case, I think that it can sometimes be helpful to think about science as a religion to the extent that we're, we're interested in thinking about what I view as the sort of rules of how knowledge about the world gets made. How, how, how do truth claims get made? What are the truths that we all agree to, to share and under what terms? Um, what are the methods for adjudicating those truths? What are the methods that we can agree to share in adjudicating those truths? Um, so to that extent, it's, it's helpful. Um, but in another way, it also poses a, a challenge that I think we're seeing, which is when we sort of think about um, science or anything, you know, if anything can be religion, then, then also in another way, how do we decide what kind of discourse we might appeal to that is bigger than the things that divide us? And I think that some of the ambitions perhaps in, in, a, in a project that we might describe as scientific is precisely trying to 
maybe not give all the truths with a capital T, but trying to find, <laughs> trying to find a way to make certain claims that we can come to agree on, even if there are other epistemological orientations we don't share, even if there are other frameworks we don't share, other things that, that differentiate us. And I think that this is a the huge challenge that humans are confronting right now, because part of what you're pointing to when you raised earlier the specter of the, you know, you know, the 70 plus million people who voted for Donald Trump in 2020 um, versus the, you know, the more people who didn't. But part of what separate, separates a portion of that um, 70 plus million people um, are exactly the sources that they trust for truth and the means of adjudicating them. And there are very real ways in which we might think we don't actually necessarily occupy a completely shared reality anymore. And so what, what do you do? How do you build bridges? And how do you find a way to have people govern each other when they are no longer appealing to quite the same sources of truth and the ways of adjudicating them? So, so let me ask you this, Jackie, in conclusion. So if you have a blank sheet of paper and you want to design a society, uh, but you can't avoid initial conditions. Um, and we have 8 billion people, and you know how they sort of span 200 different countries. I don't know how many different religions. I don't really keep track of them. Um, and different economic status, different educational status. Um, we had a president who said, I was given a few million dollars, and look what I have accomplished. And he, he had absolutely no clue <laughs> how the world works. So, so given those initial conditions as sort of constraints on this blank sheet of paper, how would you design? I mean, what, what would be the society that you'll design? How, how will it work? So I'm going to turn that around and say that it's actually fundamentally not something I could design on my own, <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and to some extent, I'm going to say this, that there's not, um, if there's one lesson I feel I've really taken from um, the, the study of what we mean by the Bible, the study of scriptures, I think that one of the most, and, and, and the moment we live in, I think one of the most dangerous things that we've had to deal with in human history is actually epistemological arrogance. <laughs> That's actually the, um, the assumption that, that any one individual or any one set of individuals coming from one context can articulate um, a good plan for everyone. Um, so in terms of like my ideal world, that plan has to be articulated by a variety of people coming from a variety of different contexts. Mm. Um, and they have to find a way to be in conversation and, and, and work together on designing a rubric that allows, um, that allows people to challenge each other. <laughs> Um, you know, and this is where maybe, right, I still want to hold out some hope for um, the things that we think of as science, because at its best, not at its worst, there are lots of bad things that science has done, but at its best, it holds out a framework through which people can challenge each other and through which people practice an epistemic humility, a sense that I actually don't know everything. And... Um, and I am quite probably wrong about many things and other people coming from other approaches might help me see something I can't see myself. Um, and, and that would be for me an, an important piece of it. So I couldn't possibly design it on my own. It would have to be a bunch of us really working together from a variety of contexts. One, one millionaire perhaps, but in a representative <laughs> way, meet a lot of people who aren't millionaires, <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, so when you look at sort of a distribution, you know, um, there is a few people who think they know everything. There are a few people who think they know nothing, but in the middle we have a big bulge, uh, people who, who think they know something and don't know the other thing. So, so if you take this distribution as a given, the question is how do you, how do you assemble you know the the group? 
the group of three. So, so you said it has to be diversity driven. It has to be different perspective. It has to be debate. It has to be challenged each other. But we don't have a mechanism to do that anymore, right? I mean, we don't debate in the U.S. <laughs> I, I grew I grew up in the in India debating actually in the in the 1970s and 80s. So fierce debate about political ideas and and questions. There are there are no debates anymore. There, there is it's it's sort of people are sort of shifting toward the both ends of the spectrum, right? There's a, there's a blue bucket, there's a red bucket in the U.S. If you wear a blue shirt and you say something, all blue shirts say, oh, that is good. That that should be right. I don't know what he said, but should be or she said should be good. And the red shirt says something and say, oh, yeah, that should be right. That's that's where we are. We don't really have a middle. <laughs> right? Where are we? Yeah, I mean, I think you're posing and this is exactly, you know, a, a different kind of question and a challenge for for people to work on, which is how do we, you know, and I think this is something that there are people working on in um, political theory and in a, a range of realms, but this issue is how do we actually forge trust? <laughs> how do we forge a broader sense of communal trust? And how do we get a large number of people together to make a change, right? So, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Jackie. Thanks so much for spending time with me. No, thank you. I mean, it's been wide ranging, but I appreciated <laughs> the chance to really stretch beyond my some of my own like comfort zone, but also to just think with someone else about the some of the biggest challenges we're facing right now. So thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Take care.